Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Jeremiah 22, 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Deuteronomy 24, 14, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. Psalm 10, 17 through 18. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Psalm 72, 12 through 14, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Psalm 103, verse 6, O Lord, O Lord, sorry, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Isaiah 9, 3 and 4, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. Jeremiah 2, 34 and 35, also on your skirts is, the, is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 26, I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Micah chapter two, verses one through three. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. 
and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And for the scripture that I'll draw from mostly today, Isaiah verse 1, 16 through 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. As Kent said, I go by aunt. I get the privilege of serving as pastor of a church called Midtown Two Notch in Columbia, South Carolina. At our church, we target impoverished communities, specifically communities that are majority black in Columbia, South Carolina, communities and neighborhoods that have suffered greatly from the effects of oppression. Those passages that I just read are about how God feels about oppression. I selected 15 passages to read. I could have easily given you 50 of them. I remember a few years ago, I was sitting at my table studying and preparing to give my first sermon on oppression. I experienced something at that time that I had not experienced before that time, and I don't believe I have experienced since. I was taking the time to go through just scriptures that I could use. I was doing a little research on the theme of oppression in the Bible, and I began to become extremely overwhelmed. To the point of tears, I remember just sitting there at my laptop as I was going through these scriptures and tears were just running down my face. I was overwhelmed for at least, uh, at least a couple reasons. One, I quickly began to notice that God's hatred for oppression, his anger against oppression is a very big theme in the Bible. I had spent most of my time being theologically trained in majority white spaces at that point, and I realized that even though it's a very big theme, I had never heard a sermon on oppression in my life. I was overwhelmed by how prevalent it was in the scriptures, but not very prevalent in the sermons that I had heard. Second, I was overwhelmed by just how clearly I was being able to see the depth of the hatred that God has for oppression. I don't know if you noticed the anger of God in those verses when talking about oppression, and that was overwhelming to me because as a black man, and specifically as a pastor that is serving communities that have suffered drastically because of oppression, it was comforting to my soul to see that God hates oppression even more than I do. That as a man who has wept and cried tears over the effects of oppression, as I'm listening to to our neighbors share about some of their experiences and, and the trouble and the trauma that it has caused them, it did my soul good. It caused me to feel so much comfort to be able to see that God sees and God cares and God hates it even more than I do. It was overwhelming. It led me to, to tears as I've talked to many white brothers and sisters about the topic of oppression and how do we as Christians respond to it. I've even heard many of my white brothers and sisters tell me that they have felt overwhelmed with the constant seemingly demands and commands from culture, from other Christians, maybe from black Christians to do something about it, to try to do as Isaiah chapter one says, to learn to do good, to seek justice, to correct oppression. And they were unsure of how to respond. I want to take steps today to equip you to learn to do good and seek justice and correct racial oppression 
in our time together today. That's what I want to focus on. And before I get into some practical, some hands-level steps for you that I believe will be helpful, at least hopefully will be helpful for you, I want to share with you a way maybe to think about correcting oppression that I have found to be extremely helpful. A friend of mine that's a member of my church back in Columbia, South Carolina, she's a scholar, uh, she's been a, a teacher, she actually has her, her PhD in education, uh, and she wrote her dissertation on different ways that she has noticed through research that public schools have struggled to educate black students in the same way that they've educated white students. She's not only a scholar, but as a professional, she's done a lot of work in this area. So I went to her and I asked her, how do you think about verses like this one regarding correcting oppression? Like, what does that look like? I don't know if you're like me, sometimes just how big the, the, the concept is and so much work that needs to be done, that in and of itself is so overwhelming that I was struggling to figure out how do I even think about fighting against this thing? And she said, Aunt, I see myself as someone who just runs interference against oppressive norms. She said she likes to see herself as someone who is trying to interfere with many of the negative and painful and difficult norms that are going on in our society, in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our communities today that are a result of oppression. And I haven't found, I hadn't heard up until that point a way of thinking about it that was more helpful for me than that. And I haven't heard a way of thinking about it since then that I have found to be more helpful. So here's what I want to try to do before I get into some specifics of, of how we attempt to fight against these or run interference against these oppressive norms. I want to do a little bit of what Marcus already did a couple weeks ago. I want to share a little bit about the history of oppression in our country, in our land, and particularly in the South. But I want to do it for a specific purpose of helping you connect some of the dots between what the effects and occurrences of oppression have been and then how we can try to correct those very specific things that I want to try to highlight today. A question to get us thinking in the right direction is, why is it so consistently present in Knoxville and other communities, especially urban areas around our country and even other places around the world? Why is it so consistent that we see densely populated areas that are primarily minority, mostly black, that are suffering from severe poverty? Why is that such a consistent thing in our country today? To try to explain that, I want to share a little bit, a bit of a story from my family, specifically about some of my dad's experiences. So my dad grew up in segregated schools in Chester, South Carolina, up until eighth or ninth grade. The schools that he went to were pretty much all black. Uh, they were underfunded. They were under-resourced. The, the buildings that he went to had problems, many challenges that he faced in the school system that he came up in. The schools were desegregated when he was about in eighth or ninth grade, so he actually went to a high school that was desegregated, ended up, he did extremely well academically, graduated very close to the top of his class, ended up going to the University of South Carolina, which may not seem like a big deal now, but at that time it was a very big deal. There were very few African-American students that were there. It was only 12 years after the first black student had attended that school. It says that school, again, continues to achieve uh, very highly academically, did very well, met my mom there, and then came back to Chester, South Carolina, where he was born and raised, and where I eventually was born and raised as well. And he was looking to, get, to buy a home that our family would be able to live in. So he's going to the different banks. At this time, he's already a teacher, and he's getting his master's degree in administration. So he's trying to get home loans, and he keeps getting denied because they're telling him that he doesn't qualify 
right? So he goes to some of his friends, some of his buddies from high school that have also gotten loans that really didn't have the same level of credentials that he had that were white. And he's asking them, hey, where'd you go to get the, the loans for your home, looking to, to, to buy a home, we're trying to start a family and that type of thing. Mind you, at this point in time, for him to be a black man with a degree from an institution such as University of South Carolina and working on his master's degree while working as a teacher, he's in the top 1% of education and academic achievement for black men at that time, especially in Chester, South Carolina. So he starts going to the, to the loan officers and, and, and applying, and they keep telling him that he doesn't qualify. So he tells them, well, I know this person who either has similar credentials as me or has less credentials than I have, and you gave them a loan, so why am I not getting a loan? And they just keep telling him that he doesn't qualify, so he starts getting angry and starts demanding answers more and more. And eventually, one of the loan officers looks him straight in his face and says, because your daddy has the wrong skin color. Now, this is in 1981 and 1982. The Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968 that says it is now illegal to discriminate regarding mortgage lending based on race and based on skin color. So we're talking 40 years ago when this occurred. My father was very fortunate. He was able to find an association that was giving mortgage loans to black people at that time. Many black people were not. Many qualified, credentialed black people were not at that time. And thus were forced to, to rent homes, which obviously is very difficult for a group of people that already had substandard educational systems. And now they're denied access to one of the primary ways of building wealth, especially generational wealth, within our society and within our country. And then if you want to add, and then you can add on top of that the issue of redlining, which I don't have time to fully explain today, but I would love for you to Google it if you're not sure what redlining is. But essentially, people of color were denied access to even living in certain parts of cities, in certain parts of towns, especially middle class and affluent areas within the city. Black people weren't allowed to live there because it was thought that it would bring the property value down in that area. So now what you have is a group of people, a demographic of people, who are not able to buy homes and are not able to even live in affluent parts of cities and towns within our communities and within our cities. So what that leads to, as I started, as I was trying to explain and paint this picture here, is highly densely populated communities and neighborhoods of black people that are in severe poverty. This is all over the place. I'm not sure if this is the case in Knoxville. I know it's the case where I live. To add insult to injury, oftentimes schools are funded by the income from property taxes in a specific area. So if you have a group of a highly densely populated area full of black people that have been impoverished because of systemic issues and they, aren't, they have not been able to own homes, which means the property tax value is not giving a lot of funding into the schools, then you're going to find a lot of schools that are underfunded and that are under-resourced that are full of black people, which sounds a lot like the school my dad grew up in. And this is the case in many areas across our country to try to talk about practical ways that our church has tried to fight against oppression, that, or to use the, the phrasing of Isaiah chapter one, ways that we try to do justice and correct oppression. One of the things that we did was we started a reading buddies program at a local elementary school. One of the things that we heard from multiple teachers and even administrators is that one of the, one of the strongest predictors of future academic success for students is third grade reading scores. Whereas up until third grade, students are acquiring skills to learn how to read. 
After third grade, as we were told, students use reading to acquire skills even in other subjects. You have to read to be able to do word problems in math. You have to read to be able to do science. You have to read to be able to do social studies. So the inability to read not only affects you in one subject after third grade, but it affects you in multiple subjects. And so a child's ability to read well, childhood literacy in the third grade was extremely important. So we started a reading buddies program, we started in the third grade, and we were attempting to expand it even beyond the second grade and first grade for children who were struggling to read in our community, in our neighborhoods. We're seeking to to directly correct the oppression that we have seen and try to to try to be try to run interference, excuse me, against norms, against negative and destructive norms that were the result of oppression, even in our communities. Also in those impoverished communities, oftentimes you'll find a lot of um, health disparities, where you'll find a lot more uh, health issues oftentimes in those impoverished communities like the ones that I described a little bit earlier. So one of the things that we did, a pretty, actually we did a couple times, was we started a health fair, or we hosted a health fair, I should say. We actually, it was actually pretty easy to get a local hospital to come out. They, they shut down the whole street, brought out an 18-wheeler, and did free health care screenings for our neighborhood. Out of two health fairs, they did over 60 free health care screenings, as long as some amount of counseling, to help our neighbors know how they can better take care of themselves. A lot of these health issues wouldn't be solved just simply by having health fairs, even though they were very beneficial, and our neighborhood was extremely grateful. Also, our neighborhood is what was known, is what is known as a food desert. If you're unfamiliar with what a food desert is, it's a place, a neighborhood, a community where the nearest grocery store is so far away that many of the neighbors don't have consistent access to healthy foods. So the kitchens don't have healthy foods in them. And so in, in our neighborhood, which is the case many times, the nearest grocery store had closed down because the area was so full of pro- poverty that they couldn't support the grocery store. So when you have a lot of people who are in severe poverty and don't have access to consistent transportation, they use the busing system to get around in the, in the city. And it's highly ineffective and oftentimes unhelpful to even try to walk to the bus stop and then to get a ride to the next bus stop, walk from that bus stop to the grocery store, buy a week's worth of groceries, go back to the bus stop, ride the, bu- ride the bus back to the one that's near your home, and then walk back home with a week's worth of groceries. It's just not practical. So oftentimes what, what people will have in their refrigerators and their pantries in a food desert is fast food or food from gas stations or whatever type of convenience store that is around them, which leads to so many healthcare problems in the neighborhood. So at that same, at the first health fair that we did, first one and the second one, uh, we found a local farmer and we said, hey, here's what we want you to do. We're asking you to come to our health fair, set up your tables, sell your product. We need to know how much money you need to make in order for you to be able to do this here at our health fair. He gave us a number, I think it was six or $700 or something like that, and we told him, cool, we'll make sure you meet your quota. If, if the neighborhood doesn't buy it, we will buy it from you. We'll make sure that you meet your quota. You be here at this time. And he came through, and I remember moms coming to his, his, his tables, uh, his farmer's market that he had set up right there, and buying groceries. And I remember seeing their eyes light up as they were excited about the things that they were going to be able to provide for their children that they hadn't been able to provide before that they didn't have access to because they didn't have the transportation to get to the store because the grocery store in the neighborhood had, or that was near the neighborhood had closed down because the neighborhood couldn't support the grocery store and those who had the, the, the money to be able to support it went to grocery stores in their own neighborhoods. 
our neighborhood was so grateful for this and we went back to the farmer and we asked him, hey, what would it take for us to get you to come out here two Sundays a month, first Sunday and third Sunday? Our, our worship service starts at 11. You can come around then and start setting up. I want you front and center in our churchyard when we finish and I'm going to tell all of our members to buy their groceries from you. I need to know from you how much you would need in order to make that fruitful for you. He said, if we're doing it twice a month, I'll need $500 a month. I said, done. We'll pay whatever we need to pay. you be here first and third Sundays. One of the things that we also did was we connected with different partner churches that we have within the city. And we, we told them, hey, this is something that will greatly benefit our neighborhood. Can you, can you just encourage your members to come and, and buy as many of their groceries as they can right here in our neighborhood? We'll send out an email to anyone who's interested to let them know what the farmer will be bringing that week. We're just asking you to encourage your members to come to the farmer's market right here in our neighborhood. And you can give members of this neighborhood, you can give our neighbors access to the same thing that you have access to. I'm asking you to come for 10 minutes and maybe spend $20 for groceries that you were already going to buy. And many of them said, yes, we want to send our people. And so we were able to sustain a farmer's market for as long as we were there in that building. We eventually had to, had to leave as that building was sold and we weren't able to lease it anymore. What were we doing? We we're just trying to run interference. Were we able to solve all the health problems? No. Were we able to fix everything that was broken? No, but, but, but can we try to prevent some of these negative and destructive norms that we find consistently taking place within our society? That's how we sought to correct oppression, as Isaiah calls us to do. Your neighborhood was so grateful. To tell you a quick story about how grateful those in our neighborhoods were, one of the things that we do in the neighborhoods, we knock on people's doors and just ask if we can pray for them. I know it doesn't work in all neighborhoods, but it works great in the one that, that we've been in. And people were just so grateful that we just checked on them and continued to see how they were doing and were following up with them on our prayer request. I mean, on their prayer request, excuse me. Uh, and there was one gentleman, I'll call him Jay, I won't say his name. Uh, Jay argued with us because we would pray for people and we had what we called an encouragement card which just has one verse that we can use to try to explain the gospel to people and we asked them can we share our encouragement card with you and if they said yes we would do that as a way of sharing Christ with people in our neighborhood and Jay disagreed with everything we said he disagreed with every single thing that we said and argued with us for like 45 minutes and we were contending for the gospel and he was saying things that just weren't 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 true and definitely weren't compatible with scripture and then when it was time for us to leave and go somewhere else he said you guys are the ones that brought, that, that brought the, the fresh fruits and vegetables into the neighborhood, right? And we were like, yeah. And he was like, I'm so thankful for y'all. Y'all keep doing what you're doing. I'm just so thankful for you guys. You guys, just keep, you guys are bringing so much good to the neighborhood. I'm so, y'all keep doing everything that you're doing. Y'all keep doing it. Our neighborhood was so grateful. It allowed us to testify to the goodness of our God just by seeking to correct oppression in our communities. Those are some ways that we did that on a, on a corporate level. I want to try to equip you with some practical, hands-level things that you can do even as an individual, ways that you can fight oppression in your community here in Knoxville, Tennessee. You can support black businesses. You can support black-owned businesses. One of the things that obviously that we've noticed within the pandemic is that small businesses are having to close their doors, having to close down their businesses. Businesses are shutting down, which is obviously a reason that we would encourage you to support black business or support small businesses in general. But multiple studies have confirmed that so far during COVID, black businesses specifically are more than twice as likely to have to close as compared to their white counterparts. 
So while we want you to support small businesses in general, supporting black businesses is one way specifically to seek to correct oppression. And you can look at KnoxvilleBlackBusiness.com that has a directory of different black-owned businesses right here in Knoxville. Or if you want to look in other areas, you can go to BlackBusinessList.com. Uh, there are probably countless other places that you can find black businesses. You're, I mean, you can just Google black businesses or black businesses in Knoxville as well. They'll point you in the right direction for places where you can just use money that you're going to spend anyway to try to correct oppression. Another is you can follow and get involved with the local government. Uh, the president and, and, and national, excuse me, elections oftentimes get the headlines, but oftentimes when you're talking about what affects Knoxville, Tennessee, what affects your communities, what affects the neighborhoods that you drive by on a consistent basis, looking into local government following elections, knowing what's going on in local school level, excuse me, on the, on the local level, things like school boards, city council, city and county mayor elections, police chief elections, Things like that. People who are elected in this community will have a big impact on the way people live and are able to flourish in this community. And oftentimes, they're, they're, not, they're nonpartisan, so it's not a, you don't get into a lot of the issues that you get in a bipartisan system. So we highly encourage you to get involved if you are able to in local level elections. Also, supporting organizations doing justice in black communities. There are quite a few organizations in Knoxville that are primarily focused on serving impoverished minority communities. If you're not able to start something, you can partner with those organizations that are doing good work already here in your area. A few that you might want to look into, the Knoxville Area Urban League, the Beck Cultural Exchange Center, the Emerald Youth Foundation, and Thrive Lonsdale. These are organizations that have been serving these communities for an extended period of time. They have experience. They're already doing good work, fighting for justice, doing good work that corrects oppression in your communities. My experience, even though I haven't worked with any of these in Knoxville, my experiences with, with organizations and, and ministries even like these is that they are always looking for more resources, always looking for more people who can serve and volunteer their time and their energy consistently, more people that can help them get the word out about, about what they are doing. You can partner with these organizations and serve to correct oppression right here in your community in Knoxville, Tennessee. You can also look up neighborhood associations for impoverished black neighborhoods. One of the two of the ones that we found are Historic Holston Hills Community Club and Morningside Heights. Again, Historic Holston Hills Community Club and Morningside Heights. One of the things in my experience working with neighborhood associations that's been a blessing to me is oftentimes they are made up of members of the community. They have such a good read and they have their finger on the pulse on what the needs of the neighbors are, what the needs of the, of the community are. And they've been serving that community oftentimes for years and years and they love the idea of people coming to help with them. So seeking to see if you can partner with them in some ways with the historic Holston Hills Community Club and Morningside Heights are just a couple examples that you might want to look into here in Knoxville. And hopefully as you serve with some of these organizations and others that you find on your own, you can build relationships within the neighborhoods that they are serving in. As a church, one of the ways, that the, the times when, when we've really served in the ways that are most effective, like the health fair, like the farmer's market, it came from, from things that we learned oftentimes during our prayer walks, having conversations with people. If every time you knock on a door, it seems like people are always talking about health problems that they are having, 
it opens our, our eyes to the fact that, okay, can we do a health fair? Is that something that we can pull off? And as you're serving with these different organizations in these neighborhoods, hopefully you're able to build relationships, get to know people on a personal level, and really get a deeper understanding of the needs that are in your neighborhoods or the needs that are in the communities that are around you here in Knoxville, Tennessee. For us, at some point between reaching out to organizations to partner and serving in that community for eight years, we became a trusted part of the community. People began to see us as neighbors. Even though at the time, many of the members of our church didn't actually live in the neighborhood, we were seen as neighbors because we were so present. Many of our church members ended up having more relationships with, with the neighbors in that neighborhood that our church building was meeting in at the time than they had with their actual neighbors that they were living around because we were present so consistently in that area. Those are some examples of organizations you can uh, partner with. Some of you here could probably name more than me, but when it comes to, here's one thing I want you to understand, when it comes to serving and seeking justice and correcting oppression in impoverished, and specifically for this sermon series, in impoverished black neighborhoods, one of the things that I always try to help people remember, because this is extremely important, everything counts. Everything counts. Here's why I say that. If you're like me, as you've been going through this series, you've been hearing about different instances of oppression, or you may have found out about or learned about oppression in other ways, it's, it's overwhelming because it seems like there's nothing I can do to make it stop. There's nothing I can do to actually end it. So you have to be able to celebrate everything and celebrate the fact that everything counts. Every, any dollar that you give, any amount of time that you give serving, even, even if you're just cleaning up for, for an organization that is serving in these communities, everything counts and we need as many people as we possibly can serving and helping and helping us to helping to correct oppression in these neighborhoods. Everything counts. You may be tempted to believe that because you didn't see any tangible effect of, of one day of service, one evening of service, or a month of service, that it's not really doing anything. Everything counts. And as much service as we can get, the better we can be. When it comes to correcting oppression and running interference on oppressive norms, all of those tangible, hands-level things, they help and they count. But there's also another way that doing this Another way of fighting against oppression and, and running interference on these, on these oppressive norms that's very important, that's maybe more ideological and maybe a little bit less tangible. And that's specifically running interference on oppressive worldviews. Running interference on oppressive worldviews. When it comes to the racial oppression of black people, much of the oppression is rooted in belief systems and biases that have led to oppressive norms. Let me try to explain. Uh, during the time of Reconstruction and even on into uh, the Jim Crow era in the South, so this is post-Emancipation Proclamation, well, I'm probably I should say more so in the Jim Crow era, in the time of lynching of, of black people. You can, you can Google this, it's horrible, I won't get into all the details of it today. But one of the things that you will definitely find if you research it is that part of the way that lynching was defended, part of the ways that people sought to justify the lynching of black people without judge, trial, or jury is by saying that black people were savages, by saying that black people are more dangerous, is by saying that black people are, are unruly, that they're, that they're more violent. And they tried to justify this, this lynching by saying it's a way of taming a people who are more savage. Well, obviously, since that time, laws have been changed. 
Laws have been put in place that, that don't allow lynching to take place today the same way that it took place back then. But even, but even though laws can change and prohibit certain practices, laws don't change and prohibit worldviews and biases. Laws don't change the, the, what, was, what was always underneath the practices, which was a faulty and evil and oppressive worldview. So oftentimes these worldviews remain. There are many people that I've even had white brothers and sisters in the faith that have, that have confessed to me that they have feared black men more than others because they believe black men to be more violent. Because she believed black men to be more harmful, more dangerous. These belief systems, these biases have, have, have sustained and lasted the test of time even until today. One of the, the, the organizations that realized this and realized the destructive nature of just worldviews and biases, uh, amongst other things that they did wrong, uh, was the Nixon administration. In this administration, as they were seeking to promote their own political gain, Nixon's domestic policies chief, whose name is John Ehrlichman, he had this to say. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. You can look this quote up. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. The aim was to vilify black people. And if we could vilify them and cause the public to believe that they are, that they are savages, that they are committing crimes that they, are, they aren't actually committing, we can go into, we, could, we can use the police force to go into the communities and get them out of the communities. We can disrupt their meetings. We can get their leaders out of there. This administration using their power at the expense of black communities and has since admitted to that being political strategy using the lives of black people as political strategy to promote their agenda. The residual effect of this act and many others is that many people even today continue to see black people as more dangerous, continue to see black people as being more violent, continue to see black people as worthy of being feared even more than others. Here's a problem with that. Here's one of the problems with that, I should say. I believe that it is more dangerous for black people to be feared than to be hated. Let me say that again. I believe it is more dangerous for black people to be feared rather than to be hated. Here's why I say that. Probably everybody that's in this room, probably everyone, if you're watching this online, will be more quickly to use violent and lethal force if you're afraid than if you hate someone. You're probably more likely to use violent force if you're afraid than if you hate someone. Hatred, I can shrug that off. Okay, people are not going to like me in this life. It is what it is. But fear, but people who have an unrecognized bias towards fearing me, that puts my life in danger. That makes walking down the street for me dangerous. That makes getting into any type of disagreement dangerous. This causes black people to experience an amount of fear and anxiety oftentimes in our societies. Think about it like this. I've heard hate crimes be prosecuted. I haven't heard fear crimes be prosecuted. 
Hate crimes is something that we're familiar with. Fear crimes is, is not seen as a crime. In fact, in, in many instances, for, for police officers, they're told to use lethal force if they fear for their lives. And I think that's the right thing that we should do. A police officer should be able to get home and get home safely and be able to defend and protect themselves. But we have to understand that we have biases oftentimes that are rooted in centuries of history in our country that oftentimes we're not even aware of that puts black people in danger. Many of the ways to fight against oppression then have to be ideological. They have to deal with our biases. They have to deal with our worldviews. They have to deal with, with things that, that are more of a gut feeling than maybe something that we will say out loud. A brother in the faith of mine that I know very well and whom I trust very much, he was telling me about an instance, a black brother, he was telling me about an instance and that happened, a really unfortunate occurrence that happened with a police officer. He was pulled over, I think his taillight was out or something like that. A police officer comes to his door, tells him to roll down his window and says, uh, please show me your license and registration. Uh, this brother reaches to get his, his wallet, reaches to get his registration, turns around to hand it to the police officer and he has a gun pointed at his face. The police officer says, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were reaching for your gun. And he says, I'm doing exactly what you told me to do. I don't believe that police officer was out trying to hunt black people. I don't believe that police officer was out trying to hurt anybody. I believe that police officer was afraid that he saw this brother, in, 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 this brother of ours in the faith, this black brother, and saw him as a threat, that he was afraid of him. And that caused him to, to ready himself to use lethal force. Fear, the fear of black people is dangerous. People seeing black people as more dangerous than others harmed black people when it was used to justify lynchings after the Emancipation Proclamation, when it was used to promote a political agenda during Nixon's administration. And it's harming people today as people are killing black people out of fear when they have no reason to fear. Fighting against racial bias protects black people and helps to correct oppression. Maybe you already notice in yourself racial bias against black people. There are things that you can do to fight against this, even within yourselves, because I know we need to fight against it in our world. I know we need to fight against it in our society, in our communities, but we need to know how to fight against it in ourselves as well, that we might see everyone the way that God does. A few things that, you, that might be helpful for you. Reading books that intentionally show black people doing well. I recommend I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown. It's one my wife read. She highly recommends it. I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown. You can deepen, you can continue to educate yourself and deepen your understanding of the historical plight of black people to help you understand how these economic disparities become, to help you understand how, how crime has, has, what's the best way to say this, to help you understand how the, the crime system or the justice system in some ways has been slanted against black people to criminalize black people in many ways. Spending time in mostly black communities, serving through organizations that are serving black communities are a great way to do it. So by serving through the organizations or some of the organizations that I listed earlier actually allows you or could allow you to spend time in certain communities that can help undo some of the stereotypes and biases that you have. There's a, a white woman in our church right now in Midtown Two Notch. Uh, we, we used to meet on uh, a road that, to, to give you a little bit of the history of, of this road our, our church building uh, was on. Uh, the History Channel did a, a, a documentary on uh, gang activity in the South called Gangland. And 
some of the interviews and some of the work and some of the shots that they did in that documentary were on this road that our church building was in. So this is a little bit about the history of where we're, we're right in the heart of a lot of the challenges that I've been bringing up today. That's exactly where we wanted to be. Now, this, this particular sister, she felt called by God to be a part of our church for months before she actually joined because she feared for her life to be there. She feared for her life to be there, not based off any particular evidence, not based on anything that's actually happened in that area. She didn't know about gangland. She didn't know about any of those things. She just had heard some things about the neighborhood and based her opinion off of that and felt that she should be afraid to go there, even though she felt like God was calling her to go. After she eventually joined, she still wasn't extremely comfortable. She ended up joining our prayer walk ministry. Well, we just went, like I said earlier, go door to door, knocking on people's doors, asking how we can pray for them. She was one of the most faithful and consistent people in our entire church at knocking at people's doors in the neighborhood that she was afraid to step foot in. And I don't believe she would have ever gotten there had she not put herself in the very place that caused her to be nervous. Had she not put herself in the neighborhood and found out she's developed friendships on top of friendships in that neighborhood that she would have never gone into because of her fear that was based on stereotypes and was not based on evidence at all. Placing ourselves in neighborhoods that are highly populated with people of color is one of the ways that we can begin to defeat the stereotypes within our minds. That we can begin to defeat the biases within our minds as we build relationships with people and say, we're so much more alike than we are different. That you struggle in ways that I did not understand. Fighting against racial bias starts with the bias in our hearts. But it also must extend to others that we have relationships with. I just want to read Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9, which reads, Open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. It's saying, hey, open your mouth, speak up about issues regarding rights, advocate for those who are poor, advocate for those who are suffering, for all who are, who are destitute, who don't have a lot, who don't have the ability to fully advocate for themselves. It's saying, open up your mouth. This is a command in Scripture. If we're going to seek justice, if we're going to seek, learn to do good, if we're going to seek to correct oppression, we have to be able to say to people, hey, that is a problematic and destructive view of black people that you have based on what you just said. We must seek the, the Holy Spirit to fill us and embolden us to open up our mouths as the scripture says to advocate because the fear of black people is dangerous for the bodies and the lives of black people. Let us take heed to scriptures like these to advocate for the oppressed, to speak up and correct people when they say ignorant and problematic and dangerous things. And I know it can cost you relationally, it can cost you financially, it can cost you socially to be committed to fighting to correct oppression. And I'm here to tell you that it is always needed and it is always worth it. It is a difficult call. It is a difficult fight that we as Christians have so many commands from the Bible leading us to join in this fight. And it's also to be, it's also important that we be motivated by the love of God, by the very character of God in this fight. If you're going to, to maintain, to persevere in this fight, you need a motivation that predates the oppression of black people in our country. You need a motivation that predates the current news cycle. 
You need a motivation that predates political agenda, that predates the United States as a whole. You need to be motivated by who our God is and his love for justice and how much he loves everyone, including the oppressed. Part of the reason I'm so grateful that you're doing this series centered around the biblical demand for justice is because I've seen many, I've had conversations with many who when I'm standing in front of them talking about this, they feel very motivated to go out and do something. And then when it's Tuesday or when when it's another day of the week, the the motivation wanes. The motivation leaves. Or when it's not the uh, the biggest headline in the news cycle, the motivation wanes. We need a motivation that is secure. We need to be compelled by something that is secure and as sure as our God is. When we did the farmer's market, I said earlier that we would invite members from our partner churches to come. They would tell me, after I would teach about this, they would say, Aunt, give me something to do. I would tell them, okay, first and third Sundays, you can come right after your church service ends. I'm asking you for 10 minutes and $20 to help us keep this going. We put them on the email list. We emailed them exactly what the farmer would be bringing on that specific day. And only about 20 of the people actually showed up. Only about 20 other people that demanded for me to give them something to do to fight against this. I, I said, I'm only asking you for 10 minutes and $20. And they said, yes, we would love to do it. And they didn't show up. And it made me believe that sometimes we actually think we're more motivated about this than we actually are. I think sometimes we actually think we're more ready to make commitment into this, to serve in this way than we actually are. I don't say that to condemn anyone. I say that to encourage you to search your hearts. I say that to encourage you to search your hearts and I say that to encourage you to search the scriptures to be able to, to, to have a vision and a view of our God who is a liberator of the oppressed. I don't know if you've noticed this in the narrative of scripture or not, but in the Bible, Jesus is, is, is declared and proclaimed to be a liberator of the oppressed. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the biblical narrative goes like this. Sin comes in and corrupts everything. It corrupts the earth, it corrupts us, it corrupts our hearts, our intentions, our motivations, our actions. Jesus even says everyone who practices sin is enslaved to sin. And he goes on to say, but, but those who the Son sets free will be freed in, will be free indeed. The Bible sets up Jesus as the one who comes in and overthrows the kingdom of darkness and all the oppressive nature of sin that has enslaved us and sets us free, as the Apostle Paul writes, that we're no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. The Bible sets up Jesus like Moses who comes in and sets the captives free from slavery to Pharaoh. He frees all who will place faith in him from the the oppressive nature of the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is the ultimate liberator of our greatest oppression, which is sin. Every other oppression finds its roots in the oppression of sin. And Jesus is the one who comes in and says to all who have experienced oppression, all who have suffered under oppression, and says, one day if you place faith in me, if you trust me, if you follow me, I will bring forth a day where all oppression and all injustice and all pain and all hurt and all of your tears will be wiped away in the new heavens and the new earth. That's who our God is. And every time we seek to correct oppression, every time we seek to bring justice where there is injustice, we are imaging our God to our world who needs to know that our God hates oppression. When we join him in his work to correct oppression, we show our world what our God is like. We look like our Savior who's going to bring this horrible injustice to an end when we partner with organizations that are fighting for justice in impoverished black communities. We show our world who we actually are and who our God is. 
He is a God who seeks to correct oppression. And so we are a people who seek to correct oppression. May we always seek to see our God that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he might give us his heart against injustice, that we might hate it the way he does, that we might seek to correct it the way that he does as well. Please pray with me. Father, it is a daunting and overwhelming task, at least so it feels, to be about correcting oppression, Father, in our neighborhoods. As has been talked about throughout this series, there are so many problems, there's so much inequity, there's so much oppression. Father, it's overwhelming. Would you empower us with your spirit to learn to do good, to seek justice, and to correct oppression, just as you do? Would you give us a, a, a glorious vision of, of who you are as the one who, who comes to free this world from the greatest oppression, which is sin, to free this world from slavery to sin? And would you motivate us with a lasting, a sustaining, and empowering motivation to continue to fight for justice in our communities? Father, if there's, if there's any fear in us, would you uproot that through the power of your spirit? Would you uproot destructive and damaging racial biases that we have through the power of your spirit? Will you help us to learn to do good as you call us to in Isaiah chapter 1? We thank you for your presence with us. And it is an honor to join you in your work to fight against oppression. All of this is in Christ's name. Amen.